Our reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 to 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we agree with that song we were just hearing. Be our vision. God, be the center around which our lives orbit. We bless you for your son, Jesus, whose shed blood gives us forgiveness of sins and whose righteousness enables us to not only be acceptable in your sight, but favored in your sight. Jesus did that for us. Thank you that in eternity past, when you saw sinful humanity languishing in sin and darkness and dread and destruction, you chose to reveal your amazing grace and do what must have been unthinkable to the angelic beings, to sacrifice your son, crushing him under your wrath on the cross. We bless you that you're the kind of God who would do that, and in doing so, revealing the glory of your grace. God, we confess that in the light of all you've done for us, we live in ways so often that betray your saving work in us. God, we easily drift into the wilderness of sin, and sometimes we run headlong into it. God, we lose sight of your love. We forget your many kindnesses to us, and we live like so much of the rest of the world that doesn't even know you. Father, thank you that you will not allow your children to find peace or contentment in this world. Thank you for allowing us to feel the overwhelming emptiness that sin brings and that you use that sense of emptiness to call us back to you. Father, we pray that you would grant us the gift of deep repentance and a hatred for sin. We announce that you are our dwelling place, our rock, our fortress. You're our place of refuge in the midst of a world that is filled with fear and terror and it is on display every night. Father, we witness the excruciating events that even months ago we could not have imagined. 
Ukraine and much of Eastern Europe have fallen under the evil shadow of this cruel tyrant who cares nothing for the lives and welfare of others. And so, Father, with David and his imprecatory psalms, we pray that your judgment would be upon this man who has brought so much pain to others. God, would you make an example of him for his godless atrocities? Father, we pray that you would pour out your mercy on the millions of people who are hurting and displaced and hungry and cold and feeling numbness at the overwhelming grief of it all. We think especially of the children who are every day being scarred internally and externally. And so, God, we pray, watch over them. And God, would you use all of this evil that the enemy intends for their evil? Would you turn it around and use it for their good? God, only you can do that. We don't know how, but we pray that you would do that. Father, we know and we are grateful that you have many devout believers in Ukraine. The church is healthier there than in most of the rest of Europe. And so we pray that you would cause your brothers and sisters to shine like the sun with the light of Christ so that he might be seen in the midst of so much of the deep darkness there. God, would you strengthen and sustain your church so that they might turn and strengthen and sustain others. Father, we praise you for the, the weakening of this pandemic. We're so grateful for that. God, help us to know what we're supposed to bring away from that. And Father, we do pray that you would keep it at bay. God, for our church family, we pray. We pray for the Tetros. God, they continue to grieve the loss of their father and husband. Comfort them, we pray. Father, we pray for the Thurston's as they wait patiently for you to unfold the next chapter in their lives. Father, we pray for Gary Cheney as he undergoes bypass surgery tomorrow in Florida. God, now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you more clearly so that as we see the glory of your Son, we would be, as 2 Corinthians 3 tells us, transformed from glory to glory. God, incline our hearts to know you and love you and from that love, obey you. Fill us with the Spirit of God. Equip us to live more and more for the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're still in Ephesians. Surprise, surprise. As we've seen in this first chapter so far, this is a celebration of God's grace as Paul lists these spiritual blessings that are belonging to those who are trusting in Jesus. And we've seen that the first spiritual blessing that Paul reveals to those who love God is that they've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Second, they've been predestined to be adopted as sons or heirs of God. Last week we saw that the spiritual blessing was the blessing of redemption that is given to those who are in Christ. And we spent some time considering this blessing that is really multifaceted. We talked about three of those facets last week. When Paul says that God has, through Christ, redeemed his people, he's saying first that we've been delivered from spiritual imprisonment. The imprisonment that everyone experiences until Jesus opens the cell doors of their spiritual confinement and releases them from a life filled with darkness and death. We also saw that to be redeemed is to be ransomed. In our sin against our Creator, we owed a debt, an infinite debt that we could never pay. We dismally fail every day. His standard of perfection 
that's earned eternal punishment for us. But in his glorious grace, God has redeemed us. He has himself paid the ransom to himself that we as spiritually destitute people could never pay. Finally, we saw that in redemption by Jesus, the price that God paid for our ransom was in providing a substitute to receive the punishment from God that we received. And of course, that substitute was Jesus Christ. He's forgiven our sin, he's purchased us out of slavery, and he's received the wrath of God that we deserved. Those are the spiritual blessings of redemption. According to verse 7, those blessings shine a spotlight on the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. As we move to verses 9 and 10, we move to what in some ways is the high point of this entire section. All of these verses reveal glorious truths, but in these two verses, Paul really peaks the crescendo of glory that is this section. The challenge for us in these two verses is like some other places in Paul, what he says here is so high and so exalted, so otherworldly, it can kind of be difficult for us to get a handle on. This is one of those sections in Paul where the challenge is that he is scraping the Milky Way theologically here. And so it takes some effort for us to break it down into bite-sized chunks so that we know, so what do I walk away with here today? Because we all want that. These kind of verses about the eternal purposes of God, which is what this is about, that's about as deep as it gets in the scripture. But there is... I trust we'll find much blessing here that can be very encouraging and very sustaining to us in some incredibly practical ways. So let's dig in. For the sake of context, I want to read again beginning in verse 7 where we were last week. Paul writes, in him, and he's speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In verses 9 and 10, Paul very clearly shifts gears here. And he moves from spiritual blessings like redemption that we can see and feel and experience to a spiritual blessing that is of a different kind. This is transcendent. This is heavenly. This is high above us. And one of the differences between these two verses and what we've seen so far is that though we can't fully understand blessings like election and predestination and redemption, we certainly can experience them and we can certainly understand why they're very important to us because they're huge pieces of what God has done in saving us. So we don't have any trouble relating to that. When we consider how sinful we are before a just judge who must punish all sin, it's easy to become deeply thankful and filled with joy when we see salvation, redemption, election. But here in verses 9 and 10, spiritual blessing is more about God's central eternal purpose and plan in all heaven and all earth. So what Paul is saying here is that this spiritual blessing is that God has now, with the coming of Jesus Christ, revealed something. He has made known the mystery of God's wisdom and insight, 
And that's in uniting all things in Christ. And so the spiritual blessing here for us to enjoy when we understand it is the fact that he revealed this truth to us. Hang on. Right now, I'm sure you're grasping, but this, this does get something where we can actually hang on. We want to spend a little bit of time getting a handle on what this is exactly and what it means to us. Now, in order to do this, we have to understand what this word mystery means. This word mystery, when we think of mystery, we think of Agatha Christie, one of her novels, maybe. That's not at all what mystery is in the New Testament. Very different. A mystery in the New Testament is a great truth about God and his purposes that for whatever reason, that known only to God, he has kept hidden until Jesus came. And there are a lot of things that were a mystery that only became clear when Jesus came. One is in chapter 5 of Ephesians, where Paul, talking about marriage, and he compares the husband and wife relationship in human marriage to Christ and the church. He says in verse 32, this mystery, same word, is profound. That is, the fact that before the creation of the universe, God ordained that the ultimate, the highest purpose of marriage between a man and a woman is to communicate, is to serve as a model for the profound union that he would establish between his son and his bride, the church. What's amazing in Ephesians 5 is Paul says, that's the essence of God's understanding of marriage. And yet, when you go back to Genesis chapter 2, and you read Genesis 2 where he introduces marriage and explains the purpose of it, you don't catch the faintest whiff of anything about Christ and the church. And so, the purpose of marriage was a mystery in the sense that it wasn't revealed until after Jesus came. So here in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, what is this mystery that's been kept hidden for ages, but now has been revealed to the church? When you find that out and you understand it, that's the spiritual blessing he's talking about. The challenge is to stay focused. So listen close, and so we're going to unpack this in the next few moments. The first thing we discover about this mystery from verses 9 and 10 is that this content of the mystery, whatever it is, it brings God great delight. Whatever this mystery is, it brings God great delight. And we know this because Paul tells us that this mystery was according to or in accord with his purpose which he set forth in Christ. And the key word there is purpose, which really literally means the good pleasure of God. We saw this back in verse 5 when we read that God, according to the good pleasure of his will, predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. That is, it brought great pleasure to adopt us as his sons or his heirs. Likewise, here he's saying that this mystery of his will, what he desired to accomplish in eternity past that's now been revealed, whatever this mystery is, it brings him great pleasure. So for God, this is a very good thing, whatever this mystery is. The second thing we know about this mystery is the content of this mystery is all about Jesus. Now, we're going to see more of this in a minute, but we see it right here because it says it was set forth in Christ. The third thing we know about this mystery is in verse 10. Paul says that the mystery that was set forth in Christ was a plan for the fullness of time. You see, the, all these prepositional phrases are a little bit thick. 
Not easy to understand. A plan for the fullness of time. What does that mean? Well, Paul's not talking about chronological time. In the New Testament, there's two kinds of time. Some of you know this. There's chronological time, like what we would, it's, you know, 1042. Or there's the other kind of time is seasons of time, epochs, eras of history. That's the kind of time he's talking about here. So what he's saying here is that this is now revealed mystery of God's will in eternity past. He's saying, this is a plan, this is a will that God would enfold, he would work into, he would manifest, he would demonstrate in every successive historic period in both heaven and earth. So this is pervasive. It's going to be in every period of history. For instance, this mystery of this plan would be part of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. It's going to be part of all of salvation history. This part, this mystery, is part and parcel of his call to Abraham. It's part of his giving of the law through Moses. It's part of his speaking through the prophets. It's part of his reign through his kings. It's through his sacrificial system mediated by his priests. Every part of God's plan of salvation in the Bible and all of history this mystery is at the center of those epochs, those periods of time. In each chapter of Scripture and history, this would be near the heart of what God was doing. This is why it's so amazing, because it, you're getting the idea this is important, right? <laughs> right? And, and Paul, Paul says, and it wasn't revealed until Jesus came. It was kept hidden for 4,000 years. That's why this is amazing. But he's not just talking about biblical history. He's talking about all of history, all the epochs, all the reigns, all the empires. Whatever it is you want to choose to say by this kairos time qualification, everything he's revealed, this particular mystery that's now been revealed was at the heart of that too. Okay? So the content of this mystery is comprehensively enfolded across all chapters of heavenly history and earthly history, biblical history and secular history. Now, again, I trust you're getting the sense that this plan has a lot of grandeur attached to it, this mystery that's now revealed in Christ. It would be hard to imagine that anything in all of God's sovereign rule over creation in heaven and in earth could be as pervasive as this plan. And yet, as we said, the irony is it wasn't revealed until Jesus. One of the implications of this is that now that God has revealed this mystery, this plan, we should at least now that it's been revealed be able to go back in each part of history in each one of these eras or epochs and be able to say things like, yes, I can see it there in that event. I can see it in that person. I can see it in that reign. I can see it in that development. And we can. We can. Now, at this point, we're ready to we'll get into the plan. Okay, Paul, what is this plan? What is this mystery that you took great pleasure in that's across all of this epochs of history? He tells us in verse 10, to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> okay, we get this huge buildup and it's like, oh, great, whatever, fine. No, what does it mean? And why do I drag you into all of this? And the reason is because we say, we say, we believe from 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all of Scripture is inspired by God, and that all of Scripture, all of it, is profitable 
for training in righteousness. That's what we say. So the question we need to answer this morning is, how? How is it profitable for training in righteousness, for us to understand the truth about this mystery that gives God great pleasure, that's manifested across all these seasons of history, and that is ultimately that he has united everything in Jesus. How is that profitable to us? We need to get there. One reason this is a challenge is because maybe it's not all that clear to us what it looks like to find spiritual blessing, which is what this is, by having a greater appreciation for the wisdom and insight of God. Okay, how does that get to be a blessing? Well, we see how it gets to be a blessing in Romans chapter 11. Those of you that know Romans, you know that it's divided into two pieces. 1 through 11 is the gospel. The most detailed exposition of the gospel in all the Bible is chapters 1 through 11. It's all gospel. Different aspects of the gospel, different facets of the gospel. And then, of course, in chapter 12 through 15, he says, and now here's how you live in light of that, by the mercies of God. Live as living sacrifices. And what does he say at the end of this section where he's detailing the gospel? He's finished. He's found 11 chapters on the gospel. And how does Paul respond to this revelation of insight and wisdom? He does it this way in chapter 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul, as he's contemplating the revelation, the insight and the wisdom of this mystery, the great mystery, the gospel, he's beside himself with a sense of wonder at the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So it is possible to experience a tremendous blessing when we consider the wisdom and insight of God that Paul implies that we should get from this spiritual blessing in verses 9 and 10. Now, with all of that as preparation, let's think a little bit about what it is when he says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What does that mean? What does that mean? First of all, we need to understand this word unite. It really means more closely to sum up, to bring together, to be the integrating principle that brings all things together. That's what he's talking about. Um, we can get a feel for what this is like by thinking about times in our life when we experienced something like this. We experience something like this when we encounter things that we just can't figure out and we're frustrated and we don't get it and then something falls into place, a penny drops and everything clicks and the light bulb comes on and it's a totally different issue from that moment on. There are a lot of things that we could illustrate. I'll give you one from my life, and then you can talk about some of the other things. We can talk about other things. One of the things like this for most people is golf. Now, I just I lost two-thirds of you right there, but this is, this is honestly the truth. Developing a good golf swing is not easy. And if you've ever had anyone try to teach you how to rightly swing a golf club, it seems hopelessly complicated. There are so many things you have to remember, and it feels so unnatural 
at first. You have to keep your left arm straight, the wrists and hands not too stiff, not too relaxed. Your head has to be down, your hips not too high, not too low. Your club speed has to be controlled. There are hundreds of things, it seems like anyway, that have to be right, and you give all of that to a beginning golfer, and the person just gets incredibly frustrated. So imagine this frustrated beginner. He spent dozens of hours on the practice tee in frustration. And then one afternoon, the club pro comes out and says, let me explain this to you. And so he explains the swing in a way the person had never thought of or heard before. Maybe he uses an illustration of some kind. A swing is like a spring that is suddenly unwound. I've heard that one. Didn't help me. Or a hundred other illustrations that pros use to help people understand the golf swing. And so when the golfer hears this, a huge light bulb comes on. And all those previously disparate parts that they could never get quite put together, when he or she hears this illustration, it all comes together. Your golf swing is no longer a source of frustration because this one thing sums it all up for you. You have to practice, but it's no longer a matter of frustration. It's something has come into your life, and all those components of the swing, they all unite together. That's what Paul is saying here about Jesus. Many of you have experienced this kind of light bulb coming on when you learn how to master a complex skill. Often it turns on learning one thing. For some of you, algebra was like this. You just didn't get algebra. And then one moment you understood something about algebra and it's like, there it is. Again, that light never came on for me either, but for some of you, it has. Maybe it's getting a, a particular step in a cross stitch that you need to have that step in there. You never really understood it, and when that happens, there it is. It's all, it's all there. For some of you, it's an integrating principle in accounting, and then you can do your checkbook, or whatever it is. It's, one, it's something like that. One of the great theological mysteries, and this is how we're going to apply this to Jesus. One of the great theological mysteries that no theologian has ever been able to fully explain, that Paul implies Jesus brings together, he brings the penny that makes this drop, is a question. There are several of these, but one of them is, why did Satan fall? Again, there's mystery there. Uh, no theologian has explained that. Satan was an angelic being created without sin. So what was it that caused him or permitted him, this morally perfect creature, to fall into sin when there is no sin there? How do you get sin from no sin? Okay? To say he had free will doesn't explain it. <laughs> it just puts a label on it. Because why would a sinful, glorious creature with superhuman intelligence in his free will make such a massively ridiculous choice as to rebel against God? Free will, again, doesn't explain it. Paul is saying by implication here, the most important answer, what ultimately will make sense of this, the integrating principle that causes all of this to come together at some level is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. As oversimplified as it might sound, Paul by implication is saying that in some way, Jesus is the answer to every important question. Satan fell because God wanted to reveal the glory of Jesus 
in saving the world from destruction. And there would have been no need for Jesus to come into the world to save his people from sin unless Satan hadn't introduced it into the human race in Genesis chapter 3. Another reason that Jesus is the ultimate answer related to the fall of Satan is that in order for the world to see something of the awesome conquering power of God, he needed an adversary. You don't know how strong someone is until you see them in a fight with someone else. And so he needed an adversary. He needed a foil who would be so great and impressively powerful that only Jesus could defeat him. So Satan, among the mightiest of all the angelic beings, fell so that he could be the foil for Jesus and thus reveal something of the extent of his conquering power. To bring it to another level in salvation history, why did Adam and Eve fall? I mean, you have some of the same problems there we have with Satan, right? We could say because Satan tempted them, but Satan tempting them didn't force them to sin. They could have trusted God and told the serpent to buzz off. God surely would not have put them in a situation where they could not possibly have been faithful to him. We know he doesn't do that. So what is the ultimate reason that Adam and Eve sinned? And again, free will doesn't explain it there either. The answer is Jesus. Humanity fell so that God could show his great, utterly unique love for those beings created in his image by sending Jesus as a sacrificial lamb who would offer himself as a ransom for God's people to save them from eternal judgment. Humanity fell so that Jesus might do the most gracious and merciful act it is conceivable for God to do, die on a cross as a human being, and in so doing the true riches of his grace and mercy and love and patience it's the ransom payment of the cross that we see the glory of Christ most fully. Humanity fell so that Jesus, as God's champion, would show his uniquely glorious power over evil. Because the great evil that no one can conquer, that no one conquered before Jesus, is the power of death. And so he sends Jesus to show the massive amount of the power of God because in his resurrection... He conquered the power of death, broken forever. Another related matter that Jesus, if you will, sums up, answers the question, how great is the power of God? It's Jesus that shows God's power, not only defeating Satan, that's, Satan, that's one way, but when he gives him power over the greatest enemy, the power of death, the cosmic realities, all of that, and this is very practical too. We're not just talking about these high cosmic questions. Why do I sin so much? when I know better? Why do you sin so much when you know better? Again, many answers to that question, and none of them are an excuse. But what sums it up in a unique way, the answer is Jesus. God allows us to sin so much so that Jesus might demonstrate to us the extent of his grace and mercy and patience toward us. You don't know how much grace you need until you need it. And we need a lot because we sin deeply. Jesus is the answer. He, why, why does God bring difficult people into our life? See, this gets incredibly practical. Why does he do that? People that we have a hard time loving. And again, the answer is Jesus. Having people in our life that we have a hard time loving reveals how amazing it is that Jesus, by contrast, loves everybody that we struggle to love. 
He also brings people into our life that we have a hard time loving to reveal the transforming power of Jesus as he melts our hearts and causes us to love people that before we didn't love. Why does God allow so much suffering into the world? Again, many possible answers to that question, many of them involving God's judgment of sin, but the ultimate answer is always Jesus. For instance, there's so much suffering in the world for a lot of reasons related to Jesus. For one, we can look at the very worst of the suffering, the suffering that's going on in the Ukraine, and understand as horrific as it is, it pales in comparison to the suffering that Jesus suffered on the cross when he endured the full wrath of God. The sufferings in this world give us something to compare the much greater sufferings of Jesus with. Do we get the idea of where this is headed? That's where this is going. Perhaps the main implication of this text about all things in heaven and on earth being united in Christ is this. When we get to heaven and we see all of the heavenly history and all of the earthly history laid out before us, now we can only imagine parts of that, but we're talking about the angels, the heavenly creatures, all the redeemed sinners with all of their testimonies, all of God's grace within every season and every epoch of existence in heaven and on earth. Things good, things bad, things indifferent. What will bring it all together, what will make sense of everything is Jesus Christ. When we see these kind of huge, cosmic, transcendent, otherworldly truths like this, again, how do we plug them in? How, how does it make a difference in our life? And for one thing, these truths should encourage us to live in the utterly Christ-centered reality that God purposed. I think we've seen if everything is bound up in Jesus, that's Christ-centered. That's totally, utterly Christ-centered. Utterly means it can't be more than, and this is utterly Christ-centered. It can't be more Christ-centered than all things in heaven and on earth are united in him. And so what does that say about what our life should be like? How about maybe they could be Christ-centered? <laughs> Everything in our lives is ultimately about Jesus. All of it points to him in some way. It's all intended to reveal him, to glorify him, to point to him in some way. Everything in our lives in some way displays his patience, his love, his mercy, his kindness, his discipline. Our lives are all about Christ. So the question really becomes, is the way that we relate to Jesus consistent with that? Is Jesus our all in all? Many professed Christians, they live their life as if it were a pie graph, and they have different sections divided. And for some people, Jesus is a small piece. For other people, it's a much larger piece. Paul is saying here, the entire pie graph is Jesus. And this is exactly what he says in Philippians chapter 1. For me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. That means that Christ is my life. In the life of the believer, Christ is your life. And death for the believer is always gain, always to our advantage, because when we die, we get to be with Jesus. These kind of sky-high, scraping the Milky Way kind of truths we've been looking about, about Jesus, they help us to see how superficial our relationship with him can be. Paul is basically saying that for God, Jesus is the point of everything. It was God's plan in eternity to create heaven and earth and to sovereignly control all things in heaven and on earth over countless ages and epochs. And the ultimate purpose is to make much of Jesus Christ.
So let me ask you as we close, is the self-evident, well-integrated, long-lived-out purpose of your life to make much of Jesus? Is Jesus the basis of your decisions? Is he the focus of your strongest desires? Is he the treasure above all your treasures? I hope we see that in light of God's good pleasure to make Jesus the unifying, integrating point of everything, that he should be the unifying point of our marriages, our families, our relationships, our families, our decisions, and everything else. Do we live in ways that are consistent with that reality? Are we enraptured with Jesus? Are we increasingly living out love for him? Are we increasingly living to please him above all others, to manifest him, to testify him, to create interest in him, to draw attention to him, to have our lives and the lives of those we love cherish him more and more every day? In Christ, the integrating truth that brings all of our lives and all people and all relationship and all times and resources and talents, is he that? As we think about that, we can allow it to just overwhelm us because that is such a huge challenge. We can. That's not the point. Because it's a whole lot better to just pray, God, thank you for opening my eyes to the glory and the grandeur of what Jesus is in all things. Forgive me that I haven't made Jesus my everything, that I've made him a piece of my life and give me the grace of repentance so that I might live with Christ on the throne of my life in every area over all aspects so that I might be able to joyfully say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May it be so for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how big Jesus is. And God, we're, we're Trinitarian people. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you have chosen to make Jesus the main thing in heaven and on earth, across all epochs of history, and you did it with pleasure. There's no envy among the, the members of the Trinity. And God, we're just so grateful. And Father, thank you for the challenge that this truth presents to us, that our lives should reflect that, that Jesus would be the unifying principle in our life, the integrating principle that makes sense of everything, that is the point of everything. God, we're not there, but we're grateful that you would not call us to be in this place if you weren't going to give us the grace to make progress to get there. Father, thank you for that promise. Keep us from discouragement. Help us not to be brought low by this challenge, but indeed to see this is what God is. And Father, if there are people here who have maybe for the first time, the light bulb has come on and they've seen that being a Christian is more than just believing in Jesus. It's that, but it's so much more. Father, I pray that you would just enable them to, to fall before your throne and say, this is what I want. I want Jesus Christ to be my treasure and my Savior and my Lord. God, I pray all this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.